You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the podcast about the study of animals in archaeology. With you as always, it's me, Simona Falanga, and me, Alex Fitzpatrick. I mean, as you, some, most of you may be aware, we do spend a lot of this podcast so sort of talking about ancient and somewhat ancient animals with, with a lot of uh, fictional animals in between from uh, anything Literal. from mythology, video games, sort of anything in between. But one thing we've, um, I think, only rarely covered is um, zoo archaeology today. Ooh, what a twist. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> Because I think we do have in our back catalogue an episode on sort of the archaeology of feasting, but we do take it quite a bit into the modern day as well, and then feasting today sort of on various holidays. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we thought we'd do a little bit more of that this time and talk about some modern rubbish pits. Yeah, you know, it'll, it'll be a fun thought experiment. It's kind of like what we do with our, our video game episodes where we pretend that it's a interesting intellectual thought experiment and not just us talking about games we like you know <laughs> but you know contemporary archaeology is really interesting it's something that i don't know about you but i'm not really that familiar with i know it's still kind of not that it's a small field but i feel like it's still kind of it, Gaining, uh, gaining momentum, perhaps? It definitely has been developing sort of in recent years more than anything, especially as yeah. the bits of contemporary archaeology that focus well on, on the 20th and what well, 21st century, especially. So I think there's a few research projects now that are picking up, looking even at the 21st century or mm-hmm. very late 20th century. They, I guess, is, um, yeah, just something you really have to bridge that gap. So, of course, you'd have people even within the archaeology community saying, oh, but if it's contemporary, then it's not archaeology. So, Yeah, and I mean, a lot of the, you know, what I guess we can also consider contemporary archaeology that I'm familiar with are more digital archaeologies, which I also find very interesting. You know, when we were doing the notes for this episode, I actually was kind of surprised that there didn't seem to be as much zooarchaeological research or even anything necessarily close to that in terms of contemporary archaeology. Well, I guess it's probably something that might develop over time. It's mm-hmm. also a case that, yes, while, you know, it is contemporary and uh, a lot of it is within living memory, that doesn't necessarily mean that certain processes and aspects we are documenting in a way that would be useful for someone 300 years down the line. Hmm, true. But it's very interesting. So it's still something very interesting to look into. Yeah, and so I think today will be a really interesting episode in terms of just kind of, you know, talking through what, you know, the archaeology of our rubbish bin is like. And again, as usual, it's kind of a very common disclaimer we have in these episodes, but we will be talking about the UK because we both live here and it's kind of what we'd be working with if we decided to excavate our rubbish bins. Please don't excavate our rubbish bins. I mean, yeah, don't, please don't 
excavate a rubbish bin. So just like, <laughs> Unless you're like... So I'm just picturing someone like drawing a section of sort of like my recycling bin. Ooh, actually, now I think about it, I, I kind of want to know what the stratigraphy of my compost bin is like. It'd be like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. <laughs> You can figure out how many Amazon packages I've gotten within a week, basically. <laughs> Let's start talking about, you know, when we... It's, it's funny because I feel like we haven't talked about zooarchaeological analysis on this podcast in so long. <laughs> like, so, yeah. You know, when you're doing zooarchaeological anal- analysis, one of the first things you might do is look at the species. Exactly. Sort of what sort of species distribution you get in your assemblage. So, of course, you know, for this particular episode, we'll be focusing a lot on consumption as uh, arguably the sort of the most human animal interactions that occurs in modern day. Yeah, I mean, obviously, people with farms and, you know, we'll briefly talk about pets in this episode. But for the most part, I feel like most people's interactions with in particular animal remains is through what they eat so you know we're going to focus on meat eaters really in this episode and it's interesting because it's actually a number that's slowly decreasing in the uk especially with the rise in popularity of vegetarian and vegan diets and all those you know beyond meat substitutes we're actually seeing that number start to rise. So, you know, there's going to be a PhD student in like hundreds of years who are, will be able to do a really interesting zooarchaeological analysis of how that number decreases over time, perhaps. Yeah, because I guess especially as a, I think there's a lot more choice now and in a way like a, a lot of sort of vegetarian and vegan foods are more readily available than they were even three years ago. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think the number I saw was like a 17% drop in meat consumption Oof. in the UK. And that's that's huge. So, you know, that number is only going to go up, I feel like, especially like, as you say, the, isn't it, isn't those kind of foods are going to become sure more fish, prevalent. Meat, so that's what I remember. I, I feel like, you know, five years ago, it would be really difficult to get kind of vegetarian foods especially these like i said these imitation meats that i think really help people shift over to a less meat heavy diet so yeah it's going to be really interesting to kind of see how that reflects well i guess we wouldn't see how it reflects because we'll be dead but <laughs> someone does it hundreds of years down the line that will be extremely interesting so yeah. It will be interesting and hopefully there'll be enough of a data set because of something that we'll discuss later. Uh, it might also be quite tricky to find out whether a particular household, like, or household you're investigating, that just sounds weird, but, you know, like <laughs> community or sort of like population that you look at, uh, it's also fairly difficult to determine whether they would eat meat con- mm. at present day, but more on that later. But I mean, yes, and in general sort of, Trends, uh, people are eating less meat, particularly less red meat. So anything like sort of beef in particular, but also like uh, cuts of pork, venison, mutton. I mean, I feel like mutton has not been very popular for quite some time in the UK yeah. and Western <laughs> Europe in general. There is a significant switch to white meat. So like poultry, I think, above all, because I think chicken is the most consumed species in the UK. Chicken, yeah. it, it makes sense. It's quite light. Uh, it's not heavy on fat. Um, it's quite cheap. Yeah. So it makes sense. And then followed by 
beef and lamb. And I think in terms of consumption, you do also see like a fair amount of uh, fish and sort of an um, rabbit or young mammalians, just lamb and veal. You, you do see a fair amount of that as well, but definitely nowhere near the consumption of poultry because fish, especially if you're inland, mm-hmm. can be quite pricey. For sure. Frozen, so not brilliant. And I think, again, like lamb and veal do too tend to be on the more expensive side of it. So I think the consumption isn't huge. Yeah, I mean, it's those factors that we already look at zooarchaeologically when we look at, say, prehistory. We're looking at, you know, difference in status, what cuts and which species are lower class people will be having versus upper class people, things like that. And obviously, you know, the classes maybe aren't as stark you know, uh, we're not saying that only kings right now only eat fish. That's not the case. But there's obviously complex factors that will affect the types of species that people are consuming. And it's not just that as well. There's also, you know, an individual level. Uh, so the present species will change depending on the type of cuisine you're looking at, as well as the impact of dietary considerations and cultural considerations. So obviously in the UK, you know, is it halal? Obviously other cultures may have kind of different ideas of what to eat and when things like, you know, eating fish on, is it right? It's eating fish on Sundays. Fish on Fridays. Yeah. Oh, Fridays. <laughs> it things- can be religious, but then it sort of spilled over onto the cultural sphere. So now I think eating fish on Friday is a thing that and not many people know mm. why. It's just, it's just what you do. It's not meat. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've we've been through this, I think, in our mini, in our archaeology mini-series, looking at the medieval period, where I think it was around the medieval period that fish, especially on monastic side, the consumption of fish went up because mm. fish isn't meat. Yeah. But I feel also if you're looking at the individual level, so there might be consumption of certain species as opposed to others over like personal concerns as well. Because I will know of people that will not have lamb or veal because so, like, they're concerned about like that they get slaughtered a bit too young because like normally most species get sort of butchered at the subadult stage but that is sort of a little bit younger for lamb and veal so there are people Mm -hmm. who won't eat so they're happy enough eating the adult animals but not the younger ones if that makes sense so i think there's a plethora of right of um variables in there for sure and arguably maybe more so than say again if we were looking at kind of past to archaeological records so it is it would be very interesting to figure out how someone from the future looking at these kind of middens i guess would try and interpret that where there may not be as much of a clear cut trend as say past cultures but uh, moving from food to pets because again uh, probably after food, the other constant interaction with animals, people have maybe their pets, you know, we still also have that kind of species selection. 
you know, mostly will be dogs. Interestingly enough, I kind of assumed, I was like, oh, I wonder if it'll be more cats than dogs in the UK, but actually dogs are still the most prevalent pet in the UK and it's closely followed by cats and uh, pet birds. So I think it's like pet bird species and then like domestic fowl. And then you obviously have rabbits, guinea pigs and ferrets, as well as all kinds of reptiles. So again, uh, you know, you're not just seeing any type of species being uh, kept as a companion. I think that the pool of sort of species that kept as companion animals has uh, definitely broadened over the last century or so. Mm. I mean, including yeah, reptiles, arachnids, amphibians, just you name it. So like, so animals that are first you so you'd expect in a in a Victorian man's sort of collection. Oh, here's all the creatures I have that I've t- that I've brought from all these various corners of the world. <laughs> but now it's definitely become a, a lot more like commonplace. Like, yeah, so here's my pet iguana, called Stuart. Of course, duh. Yeah, why not? But yeah, you know, like. It's it it is really interesting and kind of uh, not ironically but interesting enough I guess what even though you say oh there's a bit more of a a pet a selection of uh, pet species uh, I guess in some ways there's also less given that we have talked about kind of pets in the past and one of them was a baboon from an Egyptian cemetery so you know. Not many people having baboons in the UK as a pet. I hope not. <laughs> eh, well, you know, you know. Anyway, and um, while we look although, at... Although, although this claim I hear that, of course, you know, these pets, hopefully you won't find those in the rubbish pits. What you might find in the rubbish pits <laughs> are other bones that you've given to your pets as a toy True. or a chew. Yes, hopefully. But yeah, um, not, of course, we talk about species selection. There's also limb selection. It's probably, I don't know about you, but when I do zooarchaeological analysis, that's kind of probably the next step you do is looking at what bone are we actually looking at. And realistically, I guess nothing has changed, at least if we're talking about consumption. I guess you could say there is a difference in that some cuts of meat are more prized than they would have been in the past. For example, you know, like sirloin steak, and obviously these cuts have gotten much more exact, perhaps. And I feel like I feel like I want to say that there's a lot more, like the variety of cuts. Mm, yeah. But then again, that's not necessarily true. That because a lot of cuts are not bone bearing. Yeah, there is exactly. no way you'd know in the archaeological record. So maybe, I don't know, the silver side cut <laughs> as we know it in beef. Maybe they had the same exact cut in the Iron Age. You're going to find that out. True. Yeah, that's actually extremely true. I guess in my brain, I'm kind of always like, oh, well, they'll, they would obviously think about the, 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 you know, the importance of cuts based on how much meat you would get off the bone, because that was probably a bit more of a concern than, say, now. And I feel also as well, one thing that may have changed is that now we're staring clear of fattier cuts. Mm, true. Now like people yeah. want leaner, increasingly leaner meat and animals are being bred to be leaner. Figure that uh, like sort of a cut of meat with plenty of fat wouldn't have necessarily been a problem a thousand years ago. Mm. If anything, you probably need that fat. 
Yeah. <laughs> so kind of, again, what we talked about with species, this is very dependent on the kind of cuisine you're eating and obviously based on the species consumed as well. So, for example, chicken dishes will most likely be in the form of wings, say from like a takeaway or pub food. But, you know, you're looking more at breasts in more formal dishes and roasts. However, much pork and beef consumption will focus on the meat around the hindquarters, although meat cuts such as pork shoulder are also quite popular. And, you know, as you said, a lot of these cuts ultimately won't even be seen on the bone. So, you know, again. Well, the staples are sort of like British cuisine, like bacon. Yeah, exactly. You don't get the bone in that. So a household (laughs) might be going through 50 rashes of bacon a day and you'll never tell. Yeah, hopefully you're not getting bone uh, in that. Otherwise, I'd I'd probably look and see (laughs) about where you're getting your bacon from. And, you know, outside of these usual cuts, we actually, you know, we could also potentially see evidence for uh, offal, which is the organs, other non-meat parts of the animal consumption as well. Um, I guess maybe perhaps difficult in a uh, zooarchaeological study, you know, hundreds of years from now, but if we were just checking your your bin now, you might see it. Uh, so in the UK, at least, you're looking at haggis, steak and kidney pie, black pudding, and then less likely, but potentially present, are uh, extremities. Things like trotters or chicken feet, they're not necessarily mainstream in the UK as they are in other countries, but depending, again, on the cuisine, they could be found Although I guess in yeah in Western Europe you might find those exact elements in your rubbish pit, but they're actually sort of well, uh, hopefully they've never made it to the bin. They've actually got eaten in the meantime. But both pig trotters and chicken feet are commonly found as uh, treats and chews for pets. Hmm. Yeah. So again, you never know. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even think about that, but you're right. Exactly. So again, it's something that we've seen in the past in terms of, you know, bone chewed on by dogs that aren't necessarily from humans, but they were there for a a treat. And I think, though, we'll talk a bit more about that in the next part. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Register of Professional Archaeologists and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com and check out the link in the show notes. And we are back with Archaeo Animals. We are looking at the zooarchaeology of, well, your rubbish bin, so contemporary zooarchaeology. And we've already talked about species selection. We've talked about limb selection and I guess the next step, usually, again, at least for me, when it comes to zooarchaeological analysis, is kind of looking at taphonomy. So we've talked about taphonomy before on the podcast, although I guess maybe that was 30 video game episodes ago. So just as a, a refresh, it's the characteristics that occur at and after death. And that also includes deposition and all that other fun stuff that happens when bones get moved around in, in the ground. 
Yes, of course, like uh, we're probably not going to look at the taphonomy sort of natural processes in terms of um, like of the soil. Now we're probably going to look sort of at anthropogenic factors. So those, you know, modifications induced by man or I guess to an extent sort of like uh, gnawing and tooth marks, which to be fair, like will either be caused in this instance by pets of the person in question or by commensals such as rodents that will live in and around our case study. Yeah. But, you know, the, the thing you probably think of most, especially again, when we're talking a bit more contemporary and we're mostly talking about consumption is butchery. And again, kind of like what we talked about with limb selection, there's probably not much that's drastically different although i would argue that contemporary cuts are arguably a bit finer and more precise i mean i think some people still you know cut meat by hand but i'm also aware that there's a bit more especially like factory based kind of meats processing you might have it a bit more mechanical but also you have sort of like a, now you have um, metals, like alloys, like steel that mm-hmm. produce like a sharper implement and a much more reliable cut as opposed to like just trying to saw off the bone with a little like iron bone saw. Yeah, it's funny because occasionally I, on social media, I get messages from people who are like, oh, can you tell me how old this bone is? And obviously... I don't know about you, but I don't think I could ID the age of a bone, like in terms of, you know, how old the bone is, not necessarily age of death. But every so often I'll get a a picture of a bone and I'll be like, that's modern day. And you can tell because those cuts are just so clean. I'll just go with the the reliable. It's at least five years old. (laughs) (laughs) You won't be wrong, probably. (laughs) I guess to an extent, yeah, you can tell from the variety of butchery marks that you find. So, of course, you know, saws, <laughs> I got that. You don't really see those really until the Roman period. Yay! If I remember correctly. Um, but, of course, those get more specialised as time goes by. So, of course, if you have mm-hmm. a post-medieval assemblage, there'll be a, a lot more sort of butchery marks that are very sort of neat and precise and much more of a clean cut. Yeah. So I guess that would be a, an indication, but then not very precise of that because I I, I don't have C14 eyes. So. <laughs> I wish. Can you imagine how much money I'd be able to save on research? This bone was deposited on a Wednesday under a full moon. <laughs> no. But yeah, no, alas, you can't reliably sort of age animal bone by visual examination. Although, yes, the, the style sort of Butchery, and indeed, I mean, we're going into a different um, discussion here. I guess depending a on tangent on archaeo animals. Get I mean, your bingo uh, cards ready. That's Romans and tangent. Yeah, I mean, that's lining up. I mean, depending on what species you find in your assemblage, <laughs> uh, it, it, it may you may be able to sort of get a rough idea of what sort of time period you're looking at. So, if mm-hmm. you've got an assemblage, a British assemblage, and you find some munjak deer. It's probably not Iron Age. <laughs> the Munjak deer being a species native to Southeast Asia that was introduced by the Victorians. Yeah. Can we can we say the type of deer that we always say on the episode? The one type of deer that we talk about? The the one the type pal- of deer that's the, on the... Oh, the fallow deer. Yeah! Yay! Now we're coming your bingo card. 
road. <laughs> to be fair, Sorry. if you find like Iron Age Fallow Deer, that is very, very, very cool. Yes. Tell me more about it. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. right into the show. Uh, contact us. Where's your Iron Age Fallow Deer? Let's, let us know. But yeah, um, also what you talked about earlier in the first segment also kind of plays into here as well in terms of the fact that, you know, we have a lot more cuts, although again, they might have existed in the past and they probably kind of did, but we do have a lot of cuts that aren't on the bone. So you won't even really find much trace of it in a domestic uh, refuse pile. So chicken breast, silverside steaks, things like that. And I think that's kind of the main theme when we talk about taphonomy for a modern day zooarchaeological assemblage in that, you know, a lot of our culinary technology and kind of the culinary prowess has advanced that you can make these really fine cuts and really fine you know kind of culinary techniques that won't be as blatant on remains as they would have in the past but in a way like going back to sort of cuts which won't bear sort of bone fragments of course like they're very prevalent now but that isn't to say they weren't prevalent in say prehistory as well mm-hmm. anything that's testament to, pro- to how much of the archaeological record we have lost true i'm sure there yeah. were plenty of steak cuts and people also had chicken breasts aplenty but you're not going to find evidence of that yeah i guess it's something I, I always forget about uh so i'm very much to blame for that uh but yeah archaeology really is like the smallest slither you of... find like 10 percent of what was actually there <laughs> if you're lucky if i you're feel lucky. like yeah well, unless and... your soil is acidic and then it's one percent oh oh gosh if you're in a, a wet environment then boy you got cheesy bone baby Um, but yes i guess burning is another sort of uh sign that you might uh notice on animal bone assemblages but again i think maybe less so Uh, you know that's like we were just talking about that's kind of a bit of a assumption to make but i don't know you know like i said food prep is much more precise these days we have a selection of prepared meats in stores so you know a lot of people when they're cooking they're not necessarily cooking meat on the bone like people may have done in the past no and i guess that it will be affected by heat differently because there is a, a difference between cooking something over a fire and having mm-hmm. it directly exposed to fire and getting it charred yeah. and uh, sticking a chicken in the in an electrical oven <laughs> So that you're not really going to get that same. So, of course, you know, you do get you know, people using barbecues or cooking over fire, but it's still like um, it's not quite the same as sort of the evidence of charring that you find on certain archaeological assemblages. Yeah. So when, again, because, again, we don't cook as much with things on the bone or where the bone is fully exposed. So you have, you know, say one portion of the bone with like, I don't know, say the distal epiphysis just for argument's sake that has been charred because that's been directly exposed to the fire while sort of the meat bearing sort of part of the diaphysis and the other epiphysis that is not as heat affected because you had meat over it but you don't really see that as much i feel if you're just having a barbecue yeah so it's it's really not going to be the same amount and you know you're still probably like if you're doing that then you're still 
doing it at a higher temperature. So, you know, the bone is going to just be white or cracked a little bit, but not to the extent as bone that we've seen in the past that have been kind of exposed to heat or indirectly exposed to heat. And I guess not kind of similar to that. And again, this will probably be a running theme in the, these kind of um, taphonomic characteristics is marrow extraction, which is something you would see maybe not necessarily a lot in past zoological uh, assemblages, but it wouldn't necessarily be something completely out of nowhere. And, you know, normally the kind of interpretation you usually give for these kind of bone marrow extraction, especially if it's like heavily uh, evident, is that, you know, it's something that was eaten out of necessity. You were getting as many calories as you could from the food you were having uh, just to survive. Hmm? Or fuel. Or fuel. Yeah, of course. And, you know, nowadays, for the most part, uh, again, depending on the kind of cuisines you're eating and the culture you're from, at least for me personally, I always see it as kind of more of a delicacy. Just definitely something you don't see a lot of. Yeah. These days. And again, because I guess part of it being a delicacy and also because of society, we're moving away sort of from fattier foods. Yeah. You seem to be having this rejection of, like, you know, like cuts of steak that have a lot of fat on or marrow or just lard or just anything that is a bit too fatty. We're trying to move. We just have a very generic Broadway uh, in Western Europe, at least, like moving away from that over, like, preferring leaner cuts. Yeah. And like, because like when I was thinking about marrow extraction, I was like, I think the last time I ever had bone marrow, it was at a really fancy restaurant. And the way they serve it is also extremely different matter than you would see archaeologically. So archaeologically, you know, at least again, speaking from someone who works with later prehistoric British assemblages, when you see marrow extraction, it's either a very obvious like kind of hole made into a long bone or say a, a bone cracked open and they have very specific kind of percussion notches to indicate uh, the type of action that was being done to crack it open enough that you can get the marrow out without any issue. And then kind of today, at least again, thinking of how I've eaten marrow bone in the past, you know, it's often served like the bone is sliced cleanly in two and it's used as a dish or it's like the bone shaft is sliced as like a small section and the marrow is put on top. Like it's very like intricate and you were not seeing that archaeologically. I mean, another sort of taphonomic modification if you will, that we can see in contemporary assemblages are gnawing. Yep, always. Like <laughs> carnivals of, um, or rodents. And I mean, um, for the most part, it'll probably be like very similar to what we encountered in the past as well. Mm-hmm. So you still have like scavenging animals. So think of, you know, the urban fox going through your bin or sort of rodents. So you feel they have that very distinctive sort of fan-shaped gnaw marks that they make with the incisors. However, like, because course, in the past we attribute a lot of the gnawing to, well, cats are primarily dogs, really. A lot of like dog tooth marks on bones in archaeological assemblages. Except our dogs these days don't necessarily scavenge for our bones to chew on, except for the odd one that they might steal <laughs> as you're trying to make dinner. Yep. But of course, you know, there's um now there's a big sort of pet food industry so a lot of the bones and as we discussed sort of the chicken feed deer antler they're all sort of readily available for purchase to give to your dogs and especially now 
As now we do know that cooked bone is unsafe for pets because of course the heating process, especially if you're boiling them, makes them particularly brittle. So the splinters can actually cause internal damage to cats and dogs. So I feel that people are not really giving cooked bone to their pets as often as they used to. Yeah. Um, So that kind of changes the interpretation, really. Like, again, we were saying, you know, if I saw an assemblage that, say, looked mostly like a domestic assemblage with, you know, consumed food, and I saw a couple gnawed bone by canines or things like that, the first thing I'm going to think is, oh, hey, they either got leftover scrap or were specifically fed and, you know, they they got to chew on this. And nowadays, like you just said, you know, it's very uncommon to just give your leftover scrap to your pet. So you're not really seeing that anymore. Nowadays, if you saw an odd bone, you'd probably think, oh, they got that at the local pet shop or something like that. And well, that's the thing, or, or like the raw bones from the butchers yeah. because the raw bones are perfectly safe so like uh, i think our pets still get fed leftovers plenty but it tends to be you know like you have your sunday roast and you cut like a little slice and you give it to your dog yeah and you're also not necessarily saying if we saw this in a zero archaeological uh record we're not saying oh that's what they ate because there's so much more prepared pet food so you know the wet foods you find in cans or pouches kibble so dogs and cats are already kind of going bone free with their actual meals unless they're being fed a raw diet and even then that's a bit less popular so you know it's completely kind of changed the way you would see gnawed bone in an archaeological assemblage if we're looking at modern day rubbish bins. And also, I guess, still talking about pets, there's probably an interesting change of what you'd see in sort of pet skeletons from, I guess, a pathological point of view, because you might start finding sort of like, is it calculus? Yeah, find calculus buildup on teeth. Yeah, especially with dogs and cats, because. Well, of course, you know, a lot of the prepared foods that we have these days, they're a lot more, well, mind you, I say they're a lot more grain-based, but um, that isn't to say that they weren't fed sort of a heavy, a grain-heavy diet in the past. But I guess because their life expectancy is longer, mm-hmm. they have more time to develop sort of dental pathologies. Also. So, because you, yeah, you might see that more in a modern assemblage than an assemblage of dating back to Iron Age Britain. Yeah, and I think it's something we've, talked about in the past this idea of you know care and a lot of times the way you would differentiate between a say a companion animal or a pet in the past that you find archaeologically versus some random dog or whatever is that level of care that they probably had they didn't just drop dead they were probably cared for and obviously nowadays you would see that kind of increase because obviously for the most part, I hope we all care for our pets. So we are actually going to get them medical attention when they need it and extending their lives a bit. And I think that's something we will talk about in the next segment before we do our case studies. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
And we are back at Archeo Animals. This episode, we're talking about contemporary rubbish pits. And we've realised that we left out one crucial segment of a zoo archaeological analysis that we might have wanted to put before taphonomic analysis, <laughs> and that is age at death of your assemblage. So, I mean, that again, again is something that has not changed that much from the past, as most animals nowadays are butchered at the subadult stage when they've reached sort of that optimum weight vis a vis the tenderness of the meat. So, in a way, like the animals, if left to grow to the adult stage, yes, they would grow a little bit bigger, but the extra time and resources taken in raising the animal just a little step further is not economical, sort of like it's not financially worth it, or I guess that, yeah, the meat won't necessarily be as tender either. Yeah, but you know the butchering ages. Sorry, the dog was licking my feet. <laughs> Just stop. But yeah, the uh, the butchering ages are comparatively shorter than in the past. You know, we've actually selected animals that grow exponentially quicker, as far as commercial breeds are concerned. So, like the boiler chicken. So the bones may look relatively immature for the most part. And this is actually why I wanted to put this after the taphonomy, even though, you know, normally you would look at age of death a bit earlier, but I figured, you know, we talked about butchery, so it kind of makes sense to talk about age of death at this point, because that's really what we're looking at age of death for in most of these kind of hypotheticals. They're looking at soon animals, so we're looking at their butchering age. Yeah, which is, yes, it would normally be, yeah, the subadult generically, but yes, they have become quite a bit shorter in recent, well, you say in recent years, probably over the last 50 years or so, although you do mm-hmm. see sort of that trend being somewhat reversed with heritage breeds becoming more and more prominent. Yeah. So you start seeing a lot more sort of farms raising animals that are actually allowed to grow properly sort of for the correct amount of time and not having them put on like masses and masses of muscle and fat in a very short space of time. And yet we still have stuff like lamb being favored over mutton in Western Europe, at least, which is, I think you mentioned this earlier, but it's mostly because it's considered too tough for our sensitive palates. Yeah, yeah, so. Do you want to add what you just, what you wrote in the notes? Yes, with the drumming and everything, because it's just, just... Put it in a stew. It'll be fine. Hot take. It'll be fine. (laughs) And uh, we kind of talked about this when we were talking about pets, but, you know, we do have age of death for pets as well. And it's it's hard to say confidently that domestic cats and dogs live for significantly longer than their prehistoric counterparts. But, you know, it can probably be assumed given the increased medical technology and interventions, uh, the average age of death for both cats and dogs seem to be around 11 to 15-ish, depending on the breed and the lifestyle, of course. And some are getting to as old as 20 I think especially cats, they're very, very long lived. So, I mean, like the difference is quite stark compared. So if you look at countries where there's big feral cat populations, so I think like a feral cat would probably be lucky to get to six or seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, also your domestic cat will live like anything between like 15 and 20 years old. So, of course, some of it is that, for the most part, they will tend to be sheltered and looked after. And I guess we have better ways and means of looking after our pets, including sort of like, well, we still look after them 
in cases when they're affected by conditions that would normally severely limit their survival in the wild. So say if you look at cats, for example, so I mean, cats being kept as sort of full-on pets, for the lack of a better term, is a fairly recent phenomenon as cats over the centuries were mainly sort of like seen as farm cats. So like, yeah, so taking care like of the pest control side of things. So in a way, like while they were owned by someone, they still have to fend for themselves to a degree. And then if you instead take uh, my cat as a case study, where like all she's got left is one lower canine and that's about it for her teeth. <laughs> because uh, tooth resorption, which is a, an annoying thing that happens to cats sometimes, uh, she's got no teeth left. So I presume that if she was a feral cat somewhere, her chance of survival would probably be very minimal. But here she's a queen. So <laughs> uh, she's she's very happy and just doing just fine. And then kind of hand in hand with talking about it to death, we talk about funerary traditions. And again, we are talking primarily about pets, unless, you know, I'm sure there might be someone out there who considers every meal that they throw away a funerary tradition. In, in that case, please contact us. I have a lot of questions I would like to ask you. But, you know, Originally, and even still today, I think some people still do this. You know, if your pet died, you buried it in your backyard. And obviously in the the, the longer past, you would either bury it wherever or they might be in a specific place that you would bury it. We obviously have talked about kind of these mixed burials and, you know, and uh, pets buried close to owners, things like that. And then, you know, today there's an increase in bespoke funerary rites for pets. So that could be burial in an individual cemetery plot, in a pet cemetery or in a another type of cemetery, or even just being cremated, which I think is the case for a lot of pets these days. And there's also been an increase in kind of more creative means of memorializing a deceased pet with taxidermy, bone cleaning services, and businesses that will actually turn pet ashes into art and jewelry, which is also the case for human ashes as well. So a lot of different ways to be looking at kind of funerary rites in modern zooarchaeology. Imagine the headache for someone who'll be looking at those remains 500 years from now. Yeah, I don't envy them. Uh, I'm pretty happy with working with what we're working with now. So good luck, guys. And uh, to kind of, you know, bring this episode to a close, we have uh, case studies, but not necessarily case studies. We'll be kind of doing hypothetical ones, I guess, because we are talking about hypotheticals this whole episode. So let's kind of dig in to what a domestic rubbish pit would look like. So what would we find in your bin? <laughs> to be fair, zoological speaking, probably not an awful lot. Yeah. Because <laughs> before, a lot are- of the meat that's readily available does not come in sort of cuts no. on the bone. Not a lot. And that is probably the case for a, a lot of Western Europe, at least. And so, I mean, your joints of meat, you, you maybe have that for your Sunday roast here in Britain. You might have fish on Friday. But then again, like fish here normally min- means fish and chips, which has already been deboned. So you won't get that either. Although, like, you know, twist, what you might get, you know, if um, then you cook your stew or whatever in your casserole, and then you decide to also throw the casserole for reasons, you might have food residues mm-hmm. that you can do analysis on and you can come up with the ingredients of your stew. 
Yeah. So uh, any zoo archaeologists in the future somehow listening to this, lip, lipid analysis is going to be huge. So you might as well get into that. Although, please, let's not advertise single-use casserole where you just cook your food and just, just chuck it. Please don't do that. <laughs> also, I guess, realistically, if we're hopefully in the future, they have much better ways to analyze uh, zooarchaeological remains. So this could all be, you know, nothing. Maybe they'll, they'll have the C14 eyes. Mm. We just look at it. Oh, yes. Ooh, implants. Uh, 500, 560 AD, 13th of January on a full moon. So, yeah, we've also talked about, you know, boneless cuts and also the rise of processed meat being a thing. This will all contribute to the bias of what you'll find in your rubbish pit. And we've again, we've kind of talked about this, but a household may consume meat on a daily basis. But it might just be in the form of sausages, burgers, bacon, chicken breasts and salami. So some of them are more readily available and less costly in terms of meat products, but we wouldn't see them at all in the archaeological record. Again, unless you have some kind of magical future implant that lets you see all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, and of course, like, um, you might see a certain seasonality over the yeah. types of meat that are consumed. So, like, I mean, it's probably... Of course, in the past, certain species would have only been available at certain times of the year. Now yeah. we've sort of got to a stage where everything is available all of the time. <laughs> um, although you will do tend to find higher concentrations of it at certain times of the year. So say turkey being consumed at Thanksgiving in the US or Christmas in Britain. Yeah. And, you know, mute, meat utility is also not really as much of a thing. Do you want to explain meat utility? Because I don't know if we talked about it on this podcast yet. I guess it'll be the sort of the selection of joints of meat based on what what the meat utility is or how much meat they're bearing. Mm-hmm. Of course, the the joints that bear the more meat will have the more meat utility. So things like chicken wings, for instance, not a lot of meat utility. But if you go through sort of rubbish pits in in Britain, sort of like very sort of generically, you'll probably find a lot of chicken wings. So in spite of having very little meat and very little utility as a result, uh, they are frequently consumed because they're tasty. They're really good. Yeah, I can't blame people (laughs) for eating them. (laughs) And uh, I guess speaking of chicken wings, we'll go to our next kind of hypothetical case study, which is what would you find at a rubbish pit from a pub? So wings. <laughs> more wings uh so yeah we'll basically kind of look at traditional pub foods to imagine what the rubbish pit would look like besides you know vomit broken glasses and the disposable income of many university lads yes i do like pubs uh, uh just good natured ribbing <laughs> but yeah i guess uh one of your aside from wings one of your staples of the pub might be sort of lamb shank on a sunday and of course, the bones that you would find on that very much depends whether it's a foreshank, which will have the radius and ulna, or the hinshank, which will have the tibia fibula. Sometimes you might find heat exposed or like a burnt bone in your lamb shank. And that's usually if there's been sort of French trimming done, which is where sort of the meat is removed on purpose sort of to expose the bone for decorative purposes. Very fancy. I don't know how, how many pubs are doing that, but... Hey, might happen. I don't know. You might live in a fancy place. But speaking of pub foods, we obviously have fish and chips. Usually the fish will be uh, filleted, so there will be no bones in it unless, you know, 
though there might be a sneaky bone in there it happens <laughs> so, <like> sneaky bone <laughs> sneaky bone uh so we don't have much to go by for that zoo archaeologically speaking but as we were just talking about this is where stuff like lipid analysis could be really helpful to determine its identity based on the oils left over from the fry and kind of similar would be scampi as well and you know, Simona mentioned Scampi when we were, uh, you know, planning this episode. And it took me down a giant rabbit hole because I found out and I had no idea because, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't really work with crustaceans. They're actually little lobsters. I didn't know that. Oh. I'm not very smart. <laughs> Shush. Do you know when you say little lobsters? Like, I think the, the, I get what you mean, but like, it also may, it makes me feel like full size lobsters, but like, scaled down rather than i think scampi like i think they're like crawfish aren't they like, technically they are more, they, they seem quite shrimpy to me like when that's I've what seen i them. thought yeah i always yeah. assumed in my brain that but the problem and this is where i think the confusion comes is that shrimp scampi is also a thing uh yeah of course and those yeah. are made from other crustaceans again usually shrimp but legally speaking in the uk scampi refers to nephros uh norvegus aka the dublin bo- uh, bay prawn or the norway lobster i mean is this scampi legal <laughs> excuse me uh, i want to see the legal definition of your scampi here i don't think your scampi is legal listen this was very interesting to me <laughs> I, I that's why you have a podcast like about this stuff this is true and you know the reason why we haven't really talked about this is because you know crustaceans and archaeology it's really dependent on good preservation and hard shells so when you have these smaller ones such as prawns or these tiny little lobsters they're less likely to survive so really don't know how much of a scampi would survive in the archaeological record to begin with lipid analysis Lipid analysis, as always, lipid analysis. Uh, That's one takeaway from this lipid analysis, everything. That's true. And something that may actually appear a bit more is a roast, the, the famous British roast. And it's as far as. Yeah. But as far as species goes, beef is still the go to animal for British roasts, followed closely by, you guessed it, chicken and then lamb. If you want to feel opulent, though, you have all three because you can have a trio of roasts. Oh, like. Like a turducken kind of situation? I think it's like a slice of each. So you can have like beef, like pork and lamb. But what just, if it's... You're feeling really extra, like... Yeah. But, but what if it's a turducken situation? Do you know what I mean by that? Oh, like the ones, like that's the animal within the animal within yeah. the animal. <laughs> that's, that's still what happens. If any uh, listeners out there wants to make a turducken type of deal with beef, chicken, and lamb, please send us pictures and we will post it on our social media. And also tell us how if it, if it was good or not. <laughs> anyway, depending on preparation, we might be able to find burnt bone on this roast if we looked at it zooarchaeologically. And butchery could vary based on the skill of the carver. Say, if I carved a roast, you will see a lot of very interesting things happening on that bone. But for the most part, you'll see uh, filleting marks. So yeah, well, one thing we'll definitely be seeing bones are ribs. So usually beef. <laughs> you also get pork and rarely lamb as well. Bone bone also very likely, but again, it depends very much on the preparation and the style of the dish. Mm-hmm. So, but at least in this one, you will definitely get bones. There will be ribs somewhere, probably in the dumpster by the pub. But of course, the cuts will be a lot cleaner. 
I do prefer that and goes for ribs that you can have at home as well, because these days you can buy sort of pre-cut ribs that's got the sauce and everything, and you just yeah. like, put it on top and put it in the microwave, and you've got ribs going. Baby, you got some ribs going. Yeah. And we have, we did already talk about chicken wings a lot, but archaeologically speaking, or zooarchaeologically speaking, you would find the humerus and the radius and the ulna and uh, probably some remnant of sauce. So I think to end this episode, Simona, what kind of sauce do you normally have with your chicken wings? Oh, I usually just mix a bunch of stuff. So like a lot of like paprika and hot sauce and just chilies and anything spicy I have a hand. Hmm. I usually go for, as an American, of course, I either go for ranch or a blue cheese. And I hate to say this, but Tristan, what do you go for your chicken wings? I I don't really eat chicken wings. I, All right, get off. Get off the mic. No, 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 no. Okay, okay, okay. Right. I, I, I once had I once had a really nice like hickory barbecue sauce on chicken wings. And that was really, really tasty. But normally I, I just I think they're really peace like they're just too PC for me. So it's not f- top of my list. Maybe I can be proven wrong. Maybe I can be proven wrong. Listeners, if you're hearing this, I want you to boo this man. <laughs> I want you to boo this man and he'll he'll know. He'll know you're doing it. <laughs> oh dear. Of all the things to end my career. And, and to end this podcast. So as always, you can find us on Twitter at ArcheoAnimals. Uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, obviously, because uh, you, you, you're listening to it now. I don't know why I said that. But hey, while you're there, why don't you give us a review, uh, like and subscribe, tell your friends about us, and hey, you know, send us a message, let us know what you want future episodes to be like. Hey, maybe you might miss the the video game podcasts. I don't know. (laughs) Please ask for more video game episodes. Yeah. So we have a reason to really do them. No, we don't need a reason to do it. What are we talking about? <laughs> exactly. We're in charge. We're, we, we own 51% of this podcast. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time, folks. Okay. Bye. Bye. Listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts, and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.